Welcome to the Marist Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and my guest today is David Goodwillie. He's the author of the novel American Subversive, a New York Times notable book of the year, and the memoir seemed like a good idea at the time. He has been drafted to play professional baseball, worked as a private investigator, and was an expert at Sotheby's Auction House. He lives in Brooklyn. His latest novel is Kings County. Welcome, David. Maris, thank you so much for having me. It is such a joy. Um, let's talk about nostalgia. And then let's also talk about nostalgia for nostalgia, because you've written a book that takes place in Brooklyn in 2011, which is like sad and hard enough. And then you go back even further and you get at those few years in the early aughts when like Williamsburg was full of magic, it seemed. Yeah, well, when I started the book, it took a very long time to write. So it wasn't as nostalgic it is, as it is now in terms of how many years have gone by. Uh, but even then, I did kind of think of um, that first decade of this century as a very special time um, in North Brooklyn. Uh, I lived in Manhattan during that time. So I was kind of um, watching things grow and burgeon from afar mm -hmm. or from across the river, at least. Um, but it was very clear to me that a very special scene was developing in the music world there and um, that it was very uh, artistically rich uh, that I could duck in and out of and, and you know, not, I'd never lived amongst it, but I just uh, uh, saw it developing. And it also seemed to me as I thought about it more that it happened maybe once a decade in America where these scenes evolved, especially in music. You can take it all the way back mm -hmm. to the, well, you could take it back to Harlem in the 20s, but mm -hmm. certainly the 50s in Nashville and the 60s in uh, Haight-Ashbury, the 70s in Laurel Canyon, the 80s in Detroit, the 90s in Seattle. And here it was, you know, happening uh, two miles from where I lived in the early 2000s. And I have a feeling that's kind of the last geographically based music scene like that, because after that, the digital world kind of took over and things weren't so geographically based anymore. Um, but looking back on it now from 2020, it is very nostalgic, especially as the city has changed so much in the um, several months of the COVID situation we've had going, where all of a sudden everything is nostalgic, even last year. Uh, but going certainly, to a live concert. I know. So like certainly it's just, you know, uh, it's really sad, but also the city doesn't have that very specific scene certainly music wise you know other arts oh. has a certainly a very vibrant or had a very vibrant downtown theater scene uh for the last several years a very always a very vibrant art scene but for music kind of hip-hop took over uh starting in the you know 2010 2011 2012 and has certainly become the uh driving force in music and indie music which kind of can mean all kinds of things but a, a loose kind of you know indie music genre has has definitely retreated it has. Um, and it's, I feel nostalgic for that as someone who worked both in the publishing industry and the music industry in the early aughts. And one of the things that I love that's a, that's a theme in your book is this character, Theo. He works in publishing. And you hear about his girlfriend's scene and indie music is so big and new things are being created all the time that are, that are specific for like 
they're big enough that the country may have heard of it, but they're small enough that it's still art and um, special. And we never got there in publishing. Right. Um, that's a very good point. Publishing, uh, I mean, I think when I first moved to New York, there were these specialized publishing imprints, like Soft Skull is a good example, where they were like kind of hip imprints that were, that threw kind of hip parties or maybe kind of uh, Open City Magazine or a bit in the Parish Review where, where there were specific scenes or N plus one a little later on where you would just kind of uh, hear about it and want to be involved. Um, but publishing kind of with a capital P is so diffuse and so broad a thing that it couldn't, and geographically, certainly it's all over the place. Like you couldn't uh, have a tight knit group that could form a, a, a kind of artistic movement of any kind. Um, Theo, it, it's, Theo uses, so uh, the book has these two very specific main characters, Audrey Benton and Theo Gorski, and they come from uh, elsewhere to the city, which is a big theme of the book, and has always been a big theme of my life living in New York. I'm always attracted to uh, outsider stories, why people moved here and what makes a person in a small town or a suburb move to a place like New York when their neighbor is perfectly content staying in that small town or suburb. And there's always, to my mind, and this is a bit general, but there's always something about, that makes that person special or makes that person have this drive or interest in, in a larger world, whether it be New York or San Francisco or Chicago, anywhere, uh, any big city, because uh, it's such a risk. And uh, you are, it is very much kind of moving into the unknown. But these two take that risk. And for Theo specifically, um, he grew up in a mill town in Massachusetts uh, with almost no access to the arts whatsoever. Uh, his brother, his father, uh, his grandfather have all worked at the same mill in the Merrimack Valley uh, that's now, of course, closed down, as so many mills in New, New England have in the last se several decades. And he basically learns about the world through reading books and going to the library. And uh, he can't wait to escape. He does. He manages to get a football scholarship to college, and that's his ticket out of Lawrence, Massachusetts. And from there, he cannot wait to get to New York. But what he finds when he gets to New York is that the publishing industry, which he's dreamed about, uh, and he's never wanted to be a writer. He's always wanted to be an editor. Yeah, and that's yeah. also a theme of the book. The two major characters are not the stars of their industry. She's not a singer. He's not a writer. They're like the vital support to, that makes the industry actually work, right? She works at a record label, uh, and he uh, is an editor, at least for a period of time. But he moves to New York, and he really finds very quickly that the publishing industry is kind of closed off to a person like him. It's still a very patrician world um, and a bit hoity-toity and he can't get in there. And then once he finally does, and it takes him almost a decade to break in uh, and become an editor, uh, the books that he wants to edit and work with, very like literary fiction, kind of the height of you know the, the, his perceived publishing world, um, most people aren't interested in that kind of book anymore. And certainly that's not the engine of the publishing world. And so he's kind of like uh, shunted aside again and again. And the books that he loves and thinks are so important and so dear to him um, are kind of secondary in the roster of uh, publishing. And so he, um, he has issues with his job to the point where he ends up uh, becoming a film scout 
which is a very strange job, but that does exist. There's about 20 or 30 of them in the actual yeah. world. Yeah. And these are people that read books uh, early uh, and then either work for a production company or work for a studio and um, write coverage of those books and their potential as TV or film. And so Theo becomes uh, a film scout, but he has the same problem in there, where, which is that his taste in literature is too um, refined, I guess. And uh, he ends up actually going to a, a comic book store in the book to try to find a new superhero because those are the only films being made anymore. And even there, the, I love that the, the indie comics, quote unquote, yeah. it's just, it's a bunch of, trash basically of course of course but i mean that's anywhere yeah there's no there are no new superheroes for theo to find yes they've all been picked over hi it's maris and i'm so happy to let you know that mindy kaling has a new essay collection called nothing like i imagined the best-selling actress author and comedian works overtime to describe with her typical charm and insight her latest life chapter balancing the demands of her evolving career with the demands of new motherhood. In these six hilarious short audio stories, she writes about how she juggles life as a new mom, an actress, and a Hollywood power bruncher. Written and narrated by Mindy, this is the perfect collection to listen to on the go. It's available in audio and ebook format. Prime members can listen and read it for free. And you can download it today at amazon.com slash mindystories. That's amazon.com slash Mindy Stories. There were, there were always people in like 2008 saying like, what book imprint is like the merge of the publishing industry? Right. Yes. And merge is merge records out of North Carolina, which for two decades has been, uh, you know, they arcade fire. So early albums were with merge. Uh, they just broke all these great bands that actually, came to define indie music, uh, mm-hmm. the very music that drives this book. Um, and there, ha- there isn't, I mean, you know, FSG is kind of still FSG and uh, every major publisher has an imprint, whether it's Canon right. or right. Scribner um, or hopefully my imprint editor, like uh, yes, brand new, um, that, that um, tries to be that or still has that reputation. Um, but publishing has always struggled with getting people to buy imprint specific books where, you know, you just trust what's on the spine so much that you'll buy the book no matter what. And that's just not really, uh, we'd love to think that that's the case that people still do that, but, um, no one cares. I'd be really impressed if I found somebody that did. Um, aside from me. Aside probably. from Mary. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the other, so the book starts with um, Audrey's band that she used to um, represent switching over to Columbia and getting a major label deal, which changes the entire dynamic of their careers, the trajectory. Yes. Um, and, and of course, any cool imprint is already at a major label. I mean, right. there are some great indies out there for sure, but like, what you were just speaking of. Um, yeah. I mean, I wanted to play with the idea of commercialism and art throughout the book. Mm-hmm. It's not the main focus of the book. The book is a love story between these two characters, a very intense and very deep love story. It is mostly a character-driven novel. But throughout it, I mean, these two do work in the arts, and it's been a big 
part of my life, just living in New York and watching uh, this relationship between art and commerce and uh, how it works for the individual, but also how it works for the corporation and um, how it would affect the band where you have indie cred with a small label, but there's always the chance to blow up. And that takes a big label usually, not always, but usually, or certainly back then. Now it's a whole different 10, mm-hmm. 15 years later, the music industry has completely changed. But I wanted to play with that aspect of things and what the notion of selling out is, if there is still such a thing in this day and age. Towards the end of the book, Theo has this whole interior monologue about, like, uh, he remembers back to when Moby got a lot of grief for selling his one mm-hmm. of his songs to a Volkswagen commercial, I think. And the idea of that in this day and age, of that even being an issue, of a musician stopping and thinking that uh, something like that might affect his career or be kind of um, de rigueur or something like is absurd. And that's how much the word, world has changed in these last decades uh, in terms of what art means and its effect on the larger uh, world and culture. And um, I still, I guess it's a sign of like how long I've lived in New York, but I still remember those battles about what, you know, we would sit up late into the evening talking about who was selling out and who wasn't. And those conversations just seem preposterous now. But I wanted to re-examine them a bit in the book. And, you know, because the book is set in a, a time period that's not our own where, where these conversations did take place and were, or did seem very important. And it's, it, Williamsburg is such a microcosm of that kind of conversation because if you go there now, the, Very much so. can't afford the rent. There aren't that many artists there anymore. Right. So you can, of course, move that argument right over to real estate, right? And mm-hmm. the idea of real estate selling out would be the idea of gentrification, right? And so the Williamsburg in my book is just gentrifying. Just the first towers, uh, which are unfortunately called the edge, and are right along the waterfront. And there's nothing edgy about them at all. Uh, we're just starting the rumors of them. I think when my book is being the the characters start talking about this first development that's going to happen. Um, but this the Williamsburg that Audrey moves to in 2003, uh, her, the first chapter where she is in Williamsburg is still a, a small town Williamsburg where artists can still live uh, fairly cheaply, and the world hasn't blown up around them, and they're. Uh, you know, the L train isn't packed to the point where you're waiting three trains to get on and everybody's commuting back to the city. That didn't really exist. It was still a bit of an artist's haven back then. Um, And, you know, I knew I'd get a bit of grief writing about the Williamsburg of that age and kind of glorifying it a bit. And I certainly have in a few reviews, but like, (laughs) uh, you know, I'm, I'm also not glorifying it. And I'm, I'm, you know, talking about the obvious change that has happened and uh, uh, how this, you know, I'm not a, the, the, the conversation of gentrification is, is a very complex one, obviously, but it's mm-hmm. also the way of the world. And it happens all the time, anytime an economy is doing well in any city. Um, and so I think it's fair to write about because it is such a part of the world around us and to ignore it or to pretend that it doesn't happen or that one a specific group of people is to blame. It's just, you know, a bit narrow minded, I think. And so it was a bit part, it was a big part of this book um, because that, that uh, neighborhood has changed so much. And, and some of the joy for me of reading the book was that you, 
give shout outs to all of these places that no longer exist. Sure, of course. And that's very, I, you know, all of my books, my first book was a memoir. My last mm -hmm. two have been novels now, uh, obviously a memoir, but I like to write about real places. It's fun for me um, and intersperse them with places that I make up um, mm -hmm. kind of what you're allowed to do in fiction, obviously. But um, there's a certain kind of fun factor for, the writer writing about, so there's a big scene that takes place at the restaurant Balthazar down in Soho early on in the book. And it's very fun for me to recreate a restaurant scene at a restaurant I know well, because um, A, it's a challenge, but B, there's just, you know, uh, you can't go wrong reader-wise because either a reader's been there and knows it and has a certain nostalgia for the place or is interested to see if I've gotten it right or whether I'm totally off base or like, you know, there's a certain identification process that uh, a reader goes through or a reader has never been there and even maybe has never been to New York City. And the way, uh, you know, I'm writing about a space, a, a place so specifically that I hope a reader, uh, you know, takes away something about the city that they didn't know before. And uh, I certainly love reading about um, other times and other places where I've never you know, other places where I've never been and um, dreaming of what it would be like to be there in a specific era or even in the present day. And that's, that's really exciting for me as a reader. And I like to take that through and imagine it's exciting for people that read my books. Yeah. It just made me want a Dumont macaroni and cheese so bad. I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell me a little bit about the, the artists, quote unquote, uh, who lived in Williamsburg in the early aughts, who I, I do think they're, from my personal experience, not that many people I knew in Williamsburg at that time were rich kids. Yeah. Most, most people were struggling, and this was an area of the city where they could afford to have a, a crappy room in a three-person apartment yeah. and um, try to make their careers work. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'll preface this by saying that I did not live in Williamsburg at that time. Mm -hmm. Certainly a ton of my friends did. Uh, and, you know, Greenpoint and Bushwick and, and, you know, a little further south, Fort Greene and Clinton Hill and all those places um, uh, that are today kind of booming. Uh, but back then were much more affordable and much younger, skewed much younger. Um, I've always kind of agreed with you and I've had a, in terms of like what I considered artists and people who are living in those neighborhoods. And we can talk specifically about Williamsburg where I didn't know a ton of rich kids that were like slumming it and like had secret trust funds. Like most of my friends and I kind of, you know, one of my characters talks about this in the book, were working two and three jobs and working yeah. at restaurants and trying to do comedy at night or trying to write at night or you know, uh, whatever, just, we're always just running around doing stuff and, you know, just scraping by and real estate is always, cheap real estate is always the focal point of every conversation and how much everybody's paying for an apartment mm -hmm. because they had money to pay for apartments. And, you know, living with three roommates and four roommates and kind of ridiculous places, out of the way places. And that to me was my Williamsburg. And obviously there were, you know, there's trust fund kids, there's wealthy kids. There's kids who start some dot com back in the day and have mm -hmm. money. There's a little bit of everything. But 
certainly I always thought that, uh, and you know, I tried, I don't think in the whole book, I used the word hipster very much on purpose. No, yeah, I that's. I didn't want anybody to latch onto that. And of course the reviews immediately like it's in. <laughs> but um, I, you know, the word uh, has such a negative connotation amongst certain people. And part of it is that financial question where somehow uh, hipsters have been kind of like um, uh, limo liberalized a bit where uh, mm -hmm. it seems that they were all just frolicking and had a ton of money. And that's not to my, that, that wasn't certainly my experience. Um, and the ones who did paid for everybody else kind of like, it was very much a, a kind of communal, feeling then and through great parties and nobody's like looking counting how many beers have been drank like it was just a very big communal uh thing and i had even a character and then this was one of the pull quotes in the times review um where i have a character talking about exactly this and she thinks to herself why do uh hipsters get such a bad rap being limo liberals when the um uh alternative is being is is being a limo conservative which is just you know possibly much worse like I, so i don't know it's a, tough, it. it's a tough question but i would agree with you that it just wasn't my experience of what brooklyn was back then and then of course occupy wall street plays a really big part in your book and i i liked the juxtaposition of occupy wall street over here and then audrey and theo and their friends all of whom i think say well, not really political, but. Right. Uh, and, you know, I have tons of friends who are just not political, but. And uh, it's interesting now to go back and, and think about Occupy Wall Street with what's been going on the last few months uh, with Black Lives. Um, because my, I was always fascinated by Occupy Wall Street. And I spent a long time, a, long, a lot of days down there at Zuccotti Park. Um, kind of involved, but I wasn't some, you know, I wasn't majorly involved. I was just fascinated by the movement. And I think I knew that one day I would chronicle it uh, in fiction or maybe not. I didn't know back then, but I, I took notes. I used to interview people. I had some friends that were very involved. And I thought I was just shocked by several things. One, by how they managed to actually take over a park for several months in New York mm -hmm. City uh, during the Bloomberg administration. And um Secondly, by how they managed to kind of define it as not party driven, like it was, you know, there were a bunch of anti-Obama signs down there. There was just, it was more, much more of a, um, a, a cause-based um, protest, uh, a kind of, um, you know, economic inequity protest than it was a Democrats versus Republicans kind of thing. And they managed to keep that idea um going where it was apart uh, apart from the actual political system and and then it ended and for months afterwards i was like well it's gonna sprout back up somewhere else or maybe online and it just didn't and it always just shocked me how these things can um kind of sprout up from nowhere and then also just die just as quickly and so in these last months as, as blm has just become such a uh has really change the culture, uh, especially for younger people. Um, and how do you keep that going? How do you actually affect change? Because at the end of the day, I don't think that Occupy Wall Street really did change very much, sadly. Um, and I can only hope that lessons have been learned by that 
um, with I this mean, new crowd. Not. <laughs> of, yeah, with this new crowd of kind of um, protesters, uh, and obviously the inter the internet has kind of organized itself a lot more since then, and mm -hmm. uh, people are using it a lot uh, in in smarter ways. But um, I really hope that this movement can affect change and can uh, keep going in a way in a sad way that Occupy couldn't. And it's, yeah, when I think about Occupy, no one really faced consequences still for, yeah. for the, the failures of 2008. Yeah. Failures, that's one word. Yeah. Um, and then now you have billionaires with hundreds of billions of dollars. Of course, yeah. And the average person and who's just trying to get by is just... Of course, and economic inequity is still, you know, it's one of the great problems of our society. Of course, and it's worse than ever. But I, you know, the in the book Theo, the main, uh, you know, the the male protagonist, mm -hmm. walk after all this stuff is kind of piled up on him, and he's trying to clear his head, and um, he takes a long walk to occupy because he's he's been curious about it in the way that like, here's the background noise that's been going on in his life now for several months. Yeah. And he knows he should be a part of it. But like so many of my friends and in a way like, like myself, like wasn't a part of it and, but knew that he should be in that, in that kind of classic New York way where like your lives are so busy. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you should be doing something because something important is going on and you should be supporting stuff. And, um, he finally needs to be by himself. So he just finds himself there and just walking around in a haze, wondering how he's, how maybe he's missed the whole point of the culture. And maybe he's mm -hmm. just so like outside of things that he shouldn't be in New York at all because all of these people are so plugged in and they're so driven to, to affect change. And that he's just been kind of, you know, um, on the outside of it all this whole time. And that's, that's a thing that both characters are struggling with in the book as well. Like they get to New York, but they, even Audrey, who's very smooth with people and very loved and has a big circle of friends is constantly like trying to make it and doesn't have much money the whole time and is living with bizarre roommates. And like, they're just trying to get by for years and years and years and getting older doesn't mean necessarily economic success for so many people in New York. Right. It means right. maybe Audrey's very, uh, well um regarded in her industry i mean she's working with all these bands that are great bands but yeah, again she's not, a vip and yeah she's and barely... yeah she can get into any club and any show and sit backstage anywhere but she can barely pay the rent and that's such a new york idea that idea of uh, a certain kind of success but not what the rest of america would consider success yeah and 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 i like how she has a very certain aesthetic um you talk about tattoos quite a bit in your yeah. novel yeah um and i forget that back then it was risque to have a sleeve of tattoos and like now I, I do feel like that's another thing that's changed like it's very much like everybody i'm i don't have any and i live in greenpoint brooklyn and sometimes i think i'm the only person who doesn't have any out here uh I just, it always seemed to me such a commitment, right? And like Audrey, <laughs> Audrey has a huge tattoo on her shoulder that ends up playing a big, uh, they meet because Theo sees a quote on a tattoo of a Fitzgerald quote on Theo's arm. And 
or on Audrey's arm. And Theo, of course, knows what the quote is from because he's read everything. And it's from a, from a minor, yeah, short from, from a minor short story because he one summer decided he had to read all of the classics, uh, the, all of the minor works of major uh, writers. And so he recognizes the quote. And Audrey, of course, even though it's tattooed on her arm, has the quote totally wrong. She thinks it's some singer who has, has its lyrics to a song, and she doesn't even care. She just likes the quote. And that's the difference between them, and that's how they meet. And I just thought that that would be a very cool way to bring the two of them together. Uh, but, I, yeah, I, I don't know. It's always been a kind of, like, interesting thing that denotes a certain type of person in New York City. Um, that I often wish I were, but I'm not, sadly, sometimes. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I thought it would be a cool thing and just something you don't see in fiction that often. And I also like that a big theme of the book is authenticity. But it's yeah. not about, like, which of these hipsters is actually uh, an artist or which of these... It's more, it's, it seems more earnest. It seems there were, there was a kind of a, in the age of Gawker, right? There was like a kind of a toxicity around the idea of hipsterdom or the idea of, you know, young artists in Brooklyn or East, East Village or wherever um, that I wasn't interested in talking about. Because if you live through that time period, um, it just was kind of fraught and so stupid sometimes I thought and uh I wanted to have two characters that really were authentic and that didn't um go around shaming everybody else or kind of talking about what band was better or who was cooler or who was wearing what and like you know you can kind of tell the world that they're living in just from the descriptions in the book but there's no you know there's there's, there's not a competitiveness to my characters. They're try just trying to get by a lot of the book. And um, even they have a friend who uh, works on Wall Street, who, who's um, a big part of the book. There's a secondary couple that kind of plays off of the uh, primary couple in the book. And even they are not toxic people. They're not, um, they're kind of people you'd want to hang out with, even though they live on the Upper East Side and she works at Sotheby's and they're living in a completely different world than Audrey and Theo are. Um, I wanted to, um, I, I wanted to explore the idea of class and money because they're in very different places in their, uh, relationships, but in their kind of, um, you know, New York worlds. But I also, um, I wasn't interested in the kind of, um, hipster backlash kind of, or, you know, just the hipster eye rolling world that, uh, was a part of that decade very much. And it. It's so much easier now to be able to look back with just, yeah, pure nostalgia for a time that no longer exists when to admit it at the time that you were earnestly excited about something would be yeah. a disaster. Right. And, and like, also like what, I mean, who was a hipster and who was not? I mean, you know, you lived here during that time. I did like, just if you're young and in the arts and lived in a certain neighborhood, were you and not preppy or hipster or like what, you know, they obviously the very cliched first rule of hipsterdom was to declare that you were not one. But besides <laughs> that, like what, you know, it was just kind of a very nebulous thing uh, yeah. for so long. Um, and I don't know, I just didn't want to put labels on anything like that. 
I like that. I should point out for the listeners that you are in fact wearing, I didn't realize you were wearing merch. Yes, Maris, it's, I am indeed. I'm sorry that this isn't a video um, situation we're in, but uh, I thought it would be fun to, um, you know, the, there is a band that is kind of one of Audrey's bands and the, uh, kind of appears throughout the book. Um, and I thought it'd be fun to play with the trope, especially since there's no live music at the moment of like um, having a merch line, pretending the book was almost a band in the way we publicized it. So I got uh, like, I got some t-shirts made. We wild posted the book, which is um, those posters you get, uh, we pasted to the side of like construction, construction sites in New York city um, or in any city. Uh, so we did that and we just treated it as if it was like a band on tour when it's just really a book coming out. Uh, and the um, uh, net proceeds of all this stuff is going to um, Black Lives Matter um, organizations, but uh, which is kind of great because I'd love to be able to contribute somehow. And this seemed like a cool, fun way to do it. And um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, book publicity is always kind of, you know, stuck in everybody does the same thing and sends the book to the same places. And uh, I just thought it would be a fun idea to kind of try some different uh, different things because the book is a bit different than other books in that way. Yeah. So I'm sending you a t-shirt, t-shirt Maris. Thank you. My yes. gosh. Um, David, now tell me what you've been reading, what you'd like to recommend. Uh, well, I've read more this year than I think I have <laughs> in many years as have, have most people I know. Um, I've been reading all, you know, a lot of people have been spending this time, reading War and Peace and The Power Broker and the big books that they've been, have been sitting on their shelves for years and years. I've just been cruising through new books that, I, that I've just, by new authors I've been excited about or um, whatever. Uh, two books that stand out for me. Um, one is by Stephanie Dandler, who I absolutely love, who actually blurbed my book. I don't know her very well. We did go to the same school, but she's much younger. Uh, she wrote uh, Sweet Bitter, which was made into a TV show. It's a wonderful novel about um, the restaurant industry in New York. Uh, but her second book called Stray just came out a month ago. And it's a memoir. And it is one of the most wrenching, uh, incredible books I've read in, in years. It is so just, it ties you up in 80 ways. And it's just, she's such a beautiful writer. Um, it's about her kind of becoming a writer and moving to LA and, you know, kind of her life changing in big ways. Uh, I love that book so much. I'm sure it's in the front of every bookstore right now. Uh, and then my other favorite book that I read is very different. It's a memoir by a, uh, a guy named David Adjmi, who's one of America's best playwrights. Um, and I love he, this book. it is his first book. It's called Lot Six. And it's about growing up in a Syrian Jewish community in uh, South Brooklyn. And the Brooklyn of my book, I keep, we keep, ta I keep talking about it as if it's like all of Brooklyn. North Brooklyn, the areas of Williamsburg and Greenpoint and Bushwick are kind of on the very northern tip of Brooklyn. And they are like one-tenth of what the borough mm -hmm. of Brooklyn is. And there are so many other neighborhoods um, uh, with so many other races, ethnicities, just religious sects, like all kinds. Brooklyn is massive. Um, and so I don't want to, anybody to think that like Williamsburg is Brooklyn. Williamsburg is a, a tiny part of it. Um, but Ajmi grew up in, I think it was Midwood, and um, in a very, very closed off religious community. And his struggles to become an artist and break out of that 
Uh, it is one of the funniest books I've read. It's also incredibly poignant. Um, he, it's kind of dark. Uh, it's just it's beautiful. It's a cool, cool book. Yeah. Um, so those are probably my two favorite um, books I've read recently. Uh, but Love like it. so many good books right now. So it's great. Love it. Well, thank you, David. Well, thank you for having me, Maris. I love, I've been listening to your podcast now for months and it's just, uh, you get great writers on here and the conversations are wonderful and uh, I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.